Welcome to the Political Notebook. I'm your host, Billy Robb. I'm a high school teacher. And I'm Robert Robb, an editorial columnist for the Arizona Republic and Billy's dad. On this week's episode of the Political Notebook, we're talking about the tax bill that just passed. What does it do? What will be the economic and political implications of the new law? We'll also talk about foreign policy. Trump delivered a speech uh, this week about national security. Um, has he got the right strategy? What's what's being done right now on the threat from North Korea? And then we'll finish with a year in review of Arizona politics. Let's start with a tax bill. Well, it was passed. There was a huge celebration of the Republicans and Trump. Um, very happy about about this. There's a lot going on in this bill. Um, not only does it lower the corporate rate from the corporate tax rate from 35% to 21%, but it also does things like it repeals the Obamacare requirement to buy health insurance. What are the other important features of the bill that people should know about? Well, the, the heart of the bill was the reduction in corporate income taxes, not only for formally organized corporations, which had the rate reduction that you cited, but also small businesses that are organized as pass-through businesses that don't pay the corporate rate, the profits um, pass through to the owners and are paid for at the individual rate. And there was a fairly substantial deduction of 20% to um, for small businesses that fall in that category. There also uh, was significant tax reduction on the individual side. I uh, the largest amount of it, however, will go to um, middle-class families with children because the child tax credit was doubled from 1000 to $2,000 uh, per child. So uh, there are uh, modest reductions in the brackets. Um, most people, virtually all people, will see some reduction, uh, but... Uh, the lion's share of the tax relief on the individual side goes to families with children. Now, uh, one of the points of political controversy is that the corporate rate reduction is permanent. Everything else that we've talked about expires in 2025 to meet the requirements of the budget resolution. So that's been part of the tit-for-tat between Republicans and Democrats over the effect of the bill. Uh, Republicans are talking about the immediate reductions for individuals. The Democrats are talking about how that ultimately phases out and they would be actually left, if that was permitted to happen, uh, with uh, a higher uh, tax and bill. That, and that's what the Republicans are talking about, that even though that's temporary, and you wrote about that, that they had to make that temporary because of the rules, different different rules within the within the Senate. Do you anticipate that becoming permanent? I guess it's impossible to predict uh, whether something you do now that's temporary will be able to be put in a in a I, permanent state. I think it's fairly safe to say that um, for lower middle class, middle class upper-middle-class taxpayers, it's all but certain uh, that those provisions will not be allowed to expire, irrespective of whether Republicans or Democrats are in charge. 
uh, if Democrats are in charge, then the reduction to the top rate, uh, going from 39.6% to 37%, may be at risk. That's what happened with the George W. Bush tax cuts. They also, in order to meet the requirements of the budget resolution, uh, were temporary. When they came time to expire, uh, Obama was president, and he said, I will extend them for uh, all but the wealthy, and insisted that the top rate for the wealthy go back to what it was yeah. under Bill Clinton. Another criticism, so one of the main, the main criticism is this is a big, a big tax cut for corporations, and, it, and, that's, and it's for the rich, and, and that's what they're going for, their donors. You've written that it's tax cut for everyone, as you just described. There are these things that can um, that can carry on if the political circumstances allow it to. Another criticism is that it kind of is a, is a aimed to protect and and benefit more conservative states than Democrat states. One example of that is that there is a cap. It used to be uh, that state and local taxes could be deducted unlimited amount. Now there's a cap on on that is that a usually Democrat leaning states have higher local and, and state taxes. So is that a poke in the eye to, to Democrat leaning states? I, I don't think it was intended as a poke in the eye. It was intended to be a good tax policy. Um, why should the uh, taxpayers from low tax states, in essence, subsidize? the state and local taxes in high-tax states. Um, that just isn't fair. Uh, it's, it does have the effect of uh, hitting Democratic areas, particularly um, New York, New Jersey, and, and California. Um, but it really wasn't designed to penalize uh, those uh, states, as it was to eliminate a fundamental unfairness in the tax code. Uh, and and I, I actually <clears throat> wish that they'd gotten rid of it entirely. They've kept a, a $10,000 uh, deduction, um, uh, but it just doesn't make any sense uh, for there to be a federal subsidy for state and local taxes. Yeah, it'll definitely change the considerations uh, that states will make, even in Arizona, about how budgets work and whether uh, I was, it, it seems like and this will transition into the, the question about how it, um, how it affects the economy, is that it seems like this, talking about a cap on state and local deductions, is going to kind of throw a wrench in how states do budgeting and, and another thing to consider. The economy is doing really well right now. Um, is it? I know the idea is to increase growth, and you know that the economy maybe should be doing better. But is now the time to kind of throw a, throw a wrench and, and change up change up the system with this tax bill and how it's going to kind of change how states do their budgets and how how the incentives of corporations and, and businesses and I would have crafted a very different um, tax bill. I believe it's possible to get rates down, but 
broaden bases uh, against which the rates apply by more than you reduce rates and and get the rates down below 30% for both corporations and individuals while actually raising more money for the federal government. That's the approach that the Simpson-Bowles Commission uh, that Obama uh, appointed had recommended. So that would be my preferred approach. I do believe that um, this bill will uh, benefit the economy. Uh, the economy has been growing for some time, uh, but not at the rate that you would usually expect coming out of a severe recession like we had towards the end of last decade. And in my judgment, a significant reason why it hasn't performed as expected uh, was the regulatory uncertainty uh, from the Obama administration that sort of hung over the economy, uh, businesses and individual investors just had a constantly moving target, and it was big dollar regulation. So in terms of like the, the rules for doing business, not that there was stricter rules, but they just didn't, there was uncertainty as whether those would change or well, what they well, would the, end up being and how it would affect. There was a variety of, uh, a, a, a whole string of significantly increased regulation on on uh, businesses, financial institutions, energy uh, companies, utilities, uh, and just general businesses in terms of labor regulation. And it, you always thought there'd be another shoe to drop because it never ended. It, it was always something new, something different. Uh, so I think that did inhibit economic activity. I think there's already been a Trump effect uh, positively on the economy because he has eliminated that regulatory certainty. People, businesses and investors are, are pretty confident that things aren't going to get worse. There won't be surprises. So we've been able to move economic growth from about 2% a year to about 3% a year. Uh, I believe that these business tax cuts are uh, likely to sustain that higher growth uh, well into the future. So the benefit of eliminating regulatory uncertainty had sort of run its course. So this is another positive economic uh, benefit, uh, and uh, it will increase uh, after-tax returns to businesses and individual investors. And I think that will sustain this higher level of growth uh, for a while. But it also adds to the deficit, which is another critique of it. $1.5 trillion is the estimate um, in 10 years. Over 10 years. Over 10 yes. years. So another critique, and one of the reasons that a lot of people, including me, had reservations about it, is doesn't this kind of handcuff our, our we're doing well right now economically? <clears throat> Isn't now the time to like shore up uh, the deficit, kind of maybe try to maybe pay that down a little bit rather than um, cut the, I mean, Paul Ryan's quote, um, Speaker of the House Paul Ryan said, this is, you know, time to give, give people back their money. Well, when you're, when you're in $21 trillion in debt, as we are right now, is that what we're, is that, a, is that a good strategy? 
And could we could we run the risk of uh, maybe overheating a little bit going into inflation? And if there was another recession, uh, handcuffing our ability uh, to respond to that because we're already in a huge deficit getting higher. This is one of the reasons I would have preferred a Simpson-Bowles approach because it um, achieved uh, on the individual side even deeper rate reductions, uh, but in a way that raised more money for the federal government and actually helped to reduce the debt uh, rather than adding to it. Having said that, and certainly acknowledging that at some point we need to start getting serious about the federal debt, um, this bill adds not a lot uh, to the growth that's already baked into the pie. So that um, $21 uh, trillion, uh, grows well to $28, 29000000000000 trillion, even without this bill. So The projected adding, debt. Yeah, the projected debt. So a- adding this um, isn't helpful, but it's, it's not really a game changer. We will, uh, in relatively short order, have things that will require us to address the particularly uh, old age uh, benefits uh, that are uh, driving the debt and are unsustainable in the long term. The Medicare uh, hospitalization trust fund runs out of, starts running a, a deficit in 2028. The Social Security Trust Fund does so in about 2034. Um, If nothing is done, then benefits to seniors will have to be cut to match what payroll taxes generate for those two uh, trust funds. Um, So a day of reckoning is coming. Uh, If the tax bill has the effect that some of the optimists on the supply side think that it will have, uh, it actually might be um, debt neutral. Uh, But uh, if this didn't pass, we would still have a day of reckoning approaching quickly in terms of the federal debt. And this doesn't change the complexion of that challenge all that much. The other reason I didn't like the tax code is it doesn't simplify it. I've got probably the most basic, simple tax returns of all time, and I still struggle to figure out on, I'm on TurboTax trying to figure out how the heck to do my taxes. Well, it, what, it, <laughs> it, it retains an awful lot of complications, but currently about 30% of people itemize. With the doubling of the standard uh, deduction, um, that will go down to probably single digits, about 8%. So for most people um, who are sort of on the margins in terms of whether they take the standard deduction or itemize, it actually will achieve simplification for those people. One of the things I don't like about it is that it doesn't get anywhere close to the simplification that I think um, would be better. So it's definitely not going to be on a note card then. <laughs> well, if, if you don't have children, uh, 
it actually probably can be uh-huh. on on a um, postcard because you're not going to have to itemize unless you have pretty healthy, uh, probably unless you're pretty affluent and uh, have a lot of things that you can deduct. Most, as we, as I said, you'll go from thirty percent of tax fire filers itemizing to which is where a lot of the complication occurs mm-hmm. um, to um, probably around eight percent right so let's talk about the political implications now and um, we can talk about long-term political implications I want just ask real quick about the maybe immediate or the political how this became a political reality because um, the health care bill failed and you had predicted that this would also fail, but it seemed like it passed mainly due to desperation. I mean, a couple, 51, 51 votes, and you had um, you had Corker that originally was a no on it. I'm not sure what caused him to change, but Rubio said no for a while until he got a little bit of bonus on his, on the tax child tax credit that, that Marco Rubio in Florida wanted. And then Jeff Flake didn't like the, the deficit, uh, didn't like a few things about it, but he it seemed like he came around when he was promised that they would work with him with DACA um, protections for um, children of um, undocumented immigrants in January. So was that, what What do you think accounts for the final, the success of this one when um, the health care bill ended up not working? I think there's two things that caused the Republicans to coalesce and push this one over the finish line, which you are correct, I did not anticipate them being able to do. Um, the first is what you described, a um, sense that they had had a year of political failure, uh, that that <laughs> was not setting well uh, with either the general electric, electric or their base. Um, and before the year ended, they needed to accomplish something. But the other, and the reason why that was able to provide cohesion uh, is a deep belief uh, in and a wide belief among Republicans in the um, need to substantially reduce uh, the corporate income tax burden in the United States. It's kind of like a fundamental. We we have one of the highest. Um, actually, we have the highest among developed nations. Uh, headline rate for corporate taxes in the world. Um, this will drive it sh- a little bit below the rich country uh, average. So in order uh, for U.S. companies to be competitive, there was a feeling like this needed to be done. So it was both political anxiety and a deep belief in the core of what this bill is, which is the reduction on the corporate side. And you're hearing the narrative now from from Republicans like it turned from a year that could have been very de- depicted as a, a straight-up failure to now they're kind of celebrating what an awesome year they had. They got Neil Gorsuch on the, on the Supreme Court. They deregulated uh, businesses. They've you know, filled other court seats, and now they've got this bill that not only reduces all the taxes and, and benefits everyone in the economy, but it also, you know, repeals Obamacare, <laughs> in a sense. And, and, and Trump is well, it, mark, it's marketing like we basically essentially repealed 
Obamacare through this. So it's like now they're kind of trumpeting, they're able to trumpet a year of success. Well, and, and, and that's a, a gross examine, uh, exaggeration in terms of a claim by, by Trump and others. I mean, it, it did eliminate the individual mandate. Under Obama, there had been a lot of waivers uh, that had been granted to the individual mandate. Uh, there wasn't much evidence that it was actually driving people uh, into um, the Obamacare exchanges. An awful lot of people, including relatively um, people of relatively modest incomes, were paying the penalty uh, rather than buying the health insurance. The Obamacare exchanges continue to exist. The subsidies continue to exist. Um, and the subsidies go up as the premiums go up. So uh, there's really not an anticipation that you'll see a lot of people not have health insurance as a result of it. And one of the commitments that, were, that was made to Susan Collins to get her to vote for it is that the additional subsidy um, for Obamacare policies uh, that uh, Trump had suspended uh, would be reimposed. Uh, and I don't think there's much question that when they get around to doing whatever they're going to do to extend federal spending uh, past the deadline, uh, that that will be part of it. The um, the other political, the huge political question is how this is going to play out in 2018. Um, and one of the, so I, I guess there's a couple different competing, competing eras are going to play. Are the Democrats uh, going to win the, the storyline of that this is a big giveaway uh, to the rich? And, uh, it, and it seems like even, even people on the, on the left and some more liberal leaning, um, you know, moderate, moderates or Republicans, that aren't against a corporate tax cut. They say, "Okay, I get, I get. You could, you could lower these corporate rates a little bit, but at least put something together that's uh, a little bit better, or like more. You could have wiggled a two, two or three percent somewhere to give more direct support to the poor in terms of like more tax credits um, for childcare or um, or things like that." So the left's going to kind of play that narrative, and and that is that it was that it was rushed, it was it was kind of cooked up, and this was um, going to increase income inequality. The main argument for the Republicans will it seems to me to be how the economy ends up ends up doing. Do you think that's a uh, one of the key factors? If the economy goes well, the Republicans can keep um, patting themselves on the back and taking credit for it all. Uh, is that the determining factor? Or even if the economy goes well, um, could the Democrats still, um, in the way this bill is passed, and selling the narrative that it's um, that it's unfair, are they going to get more of a benefit from this in 2018? How it will play out um, will be very, very interesting because there's a lot of cross currents. There is no question that the Democrats have won the argument to date um, with their charge that this is a giveaway to large corporations and the rich that the middle class will have to pay for. Now, um, 
that is a claim that's very quickly going to be proven untrue uh, because it's all based upon what happens eight years from now. Immediately, uh, most people will probably see a slight reduction in what they pay in withholding taxes uh, because of the increase in the standard deduction and the reduction in the rates and changes that have been made to the brackets. But that effect is likely to be fairly small, um, but it will be to the positive. Uh, the real uh, tax relief for the middle class uh, is in the child tax credit increase. And people really won't know that until 2019 uh, when they file their income taxes for 2018. So um, the extent to which it helps a lot of families might not fully be recognized by them in 2018. I do believe that if the economy is doing well, while uh, the extent to which that is attributable to this tax reform uh, will be hotly disputed, I think the general sense is if the economy is doing well and people are feeling more secure financially or more optimistic about the future, that redounds to the benefit of the party in charge. Um, so, um, as I said, there's a lot of cross-currents, and I think it's highly unclear how this will be playing in 2018. I'm inclined to believe it will benefit Republicans because I do believe it will have the effect of sustaining the recent uptick in uh, the trajectory of economic growth. And as you know, on very blunt terms, it gives them a win. And yet they're they're doing news conferences, patting themselves on the back, and they they got they got what did they get elected for to do to do that? So well, you're, that, that that might quiet some. Um, quarrelsomeness in the hardcore Republican base. Uh, but I don't think that just passing the bill, uh, particularly given that most people uh, think that it's a bad idea and it's a bad bill and bad for them. Good point, yeah. Uh, Very low Necessarily um, benefits them. Mm. It, it's. I think people are going to be pleasantly surprised uh, that they will see some modest immediately ben immediate, immediate benefit, although the real payoff for individuals will occur when they file their tax return in April of 2019 for the tax year 2018. And that seems to be Paul Ryan's big hope is, hey, this is going to be – he's got low, uh, low public opinion ratings right now, but – the hope is that it'll gain in popularity ended up being a benefit. I'll be interested to see how that, uh, that ends up playing out. Let's transition to our, our second topic, and that's foreign policy. Uh, amidst all this uh, talk here at home about taxes and the Russian investigation and um, a lot of other cultural things like the, like the reckoning with the Me Too movement, um, North North Korea has been trying to build a nuke to destroy us. Uh, what I mean, it seems like that um, has been 
always always present. It pops up in the news whenever uh, a, a test is a nuclear test is is done on the missiles um, or on the nukes over there, or when when uh, a Trump um, someone in the Trump administration talks to it. Um, but it's a it's been steadily increasing threat for decades. Um, Trump gave a speech this week um, based on a on a national security uh, report. From what you've seen, um, does he have does he have the right approach uh, in general, and specifically, what can be done, um, and is his approach any different than the other presidents on North Korea? So far, uh, his approach on North Korea isn't uh, materially different um, than his uh, predecessors. Uh, and with respect to Trump, uh, I don't think a strategy document or a strategy speech uh, means much. Uh, it's, I think, clear that his conduct of foreign policy is going to be ad hoc, um, reacting based upon the circumstances that present themselves. Uh, he, uh, as other presidents have, is hoping to induce uh, China um, to take the kind of action that would force a change in direction in North Korea. Um, No one has succeeded. But the stakes have become considerably higher uh, with uh, North Korea's successful testing of interballistic missiles capable of reaching the United States. Um, The Trump administration, uh, I think, is focused on it. uh, And the question is, will anything so induce China? There's little reason at this point to believe that it will which leaves the United States with the question of, do we invest in missile defense and try to contain the North Korean threat? Japan uh, recently announced that it was going to buy um, our top-shelf ballistic missile Is it too late technology. for that? Um, we don't really know exactly when North Korea is going to get the... Well, assuming r- right now we, we, we have rudimentary uh, missile defense capabilities, uh, probably for uh, enough to have a reasonable degree of confidence that we could shoot down uh, if North Korea was firing one or two missiles, uh, that we have enough interceptors that we ought to be able to um, contain that if, if they start proliferating. Uh, then we might be in jeopardy. But I I think we can buy some time. And we need to develop the ability to destroy these missiles in their launch phase. And that's a missing part of our missile defense capability. Part of the strategic um, document uh, is... This is the the document released this week? Yes. Okay. Is an increase in commitment. Uh, to missile defense. So I think we've got 
a period of time where we could pursue that. But clearly the Trump administration has left on the table a military option to try to take out um, the missiles, the nuclear um, production capability, and perhaps the regime. Uh, and I think that the threat of the Trump administration doing that, particularly given how increased the stakes have become, is more real. Uh, other presidents said they weren't taking that option off the table. I think the perception is the Trump administration very much has it on the table. If the Chinese were to believe we were going to take military action, that might be what would induce them to use their death grip over the North Korean economy to execute a friendly coup uh, where you would replace the um, current regime with a regime that was still friendly to China and wouldn't be a threat to unify uh, with South Korea, which is China's, China's two nightmares are chaos in North Korea and an uncontrolled refugee uh, problem coming across its border, or a North Korean government uh, that was friendly towards the United States and uh, didn't serve as the buffer that North Korea currently serves between South Korea and 28,000 or so U.S. troops and the Chinese border. So we've got option... Option A, try to develop our technology to make sure we can take out their missiles closer to the time of, of launch. Option B would be sending in a military to just try to take them out right now. Um, it doesn't seem like option B has a half measure. It seems to me like you go in there and you're going in there. My understanding, and not obviously from having been briefed by what would be very top secret um, plans, uh, is that there's gradations um, that are being developed in terms of a military option from a surgical strike on um, the missiles and, and the nuclear uh, production capabilities Two, um, something that would try to take out the current regime. But, but, but there's also option C, which is being developed, which is being pursued right now more, more aggressively, uh, which is uh, diplomatic efforts to uh, isolate and pressure uh, North Korea. With, with the hopes of convincing, would that be tethered to a, to a convincing of China to do, the, to do the coup, or is that just pinching, option C, pinching them out so hard that they just can't get a bomb functional? At, at present, it isn't to induce China to bring about a friendly coup, although I think that ultimately is the uh, best and safest outcome. It's to get North Korea to change its course, um, to denuclearize be, in order to relieve the economic and other diplomatic pressures that are being brought to bear. I'm not optimistic that that's going to happen. I, I, I don't think the current regime will change its course irrespective of what kind of international sanction 
regime it faces. And, and I don't think China will act until it becomes persuaded that if it doesn't act, there will be U.S. military action. And option A seems, seems a little risky. You're kind of betting on this technology that really you don't know for sure if it's going to catch one or all of them. But isn't the, isn't the risk with option B the, um, that even if you do a surgical strike, wouldn't that, don't they say that's going to spark a, an onslaught of South Korea by the by North Korean military? That, that is a very real um, risk. And uh, that's why um, the diplomatic approach is being tried. Uh, and there will at least be, I think, careful consideration to saying, do we believe we can develop missile defenses sufficiently to eliminate the threat without taking military action to destroy the threat and possibly the regime? And that was one of um, my biggest fears and a lot of other people's biggest fears is that you're going to get into a situation like this which requires a very, very difficult decision. And ultimately, the final decision is going to come down to the president. And so one of the biggest questions here is how is Trump processing information and, and how is he going to end up end up making a decision? And believe it or not, like um, even though... That's been a, one of the primary fears and one of my main kind of arguments about why Trump should never have been president uh, was because of that decision. There's an article uh, in the New York Times that everyone was talking about uh, playing a part his uh, Trump's personal, like kind of personal life day-to-day. I think the title was uh, Trump's day-to-day battle for, for survival. And the kind of the laughing points out of that was that he drinks 12 12 cans of Diet Coke a day, and he just consumes uh, cable news all day long, and that his advisors are just fighting each other to keep him from getting bad information, that if he gets, if he gets a, you know, a note from someone, he'll likely to be influenced by it. And so it's a battle over what gets into his mind. And that, that was kind of been a laughing, kind of the laughing stock of, look at this doofus. But actually, for me, there was, there was a couple of things in there about how he was approaching uh, specifically the North Korea threat, or is, and it's to me that was the the only thing that I've read uh, about Trump that has given me a little bit of optimism. Like, okay, maybe there is actually a rational decision maker in there somewhere that's not going to just fly, not going to on the whim do something that's going to, you know, destroy destroy something. So for me, even though. Um, my confidence level never been high, and I still don't. There was a in that article. There was like a glimpse of um, hope for me for his ability to make decisions. Well, Trump is surrounded by generals um, whose judgment he appears to to value. Uh, who um, I think will ensure that any military option is fully vetted, fully considered. Uh, But ultimately, uh, we can't stand idle while North Korea develops the ability to destroy an American city uh, with a nuclear weapon. No doubt. Um, So another... uh 
another big question moving into 2018. How's how's that gonna how's that gonna play out? Let's just finish. Let's just finish with this. A uh, quick uh, just recap review of of politics specific to to Arizona. Um, it's been a roller coaster year, I think, in all the all of politics, and we've not been uh, immune to that here in Arizona. Uh, Jeff Flake writing a book, publishing a publishing a book, uh, conscious of a conservative. Uh, very critical of of Trump and the and the direction that Republicans are going and, and cozying up and um, kind of submitting to to Trumpism um, and then announcing his that he wasn't going to seek reelection. Huge story, um, tragedy of John John McCain's diagnosis and uh, keeps battling that. He's he's at home uh, resting right now in in Arizona. Um, a lot of battles over education and other things, uh, other local battles here in Arizona. What's been, what's been some of your biggest takeaways from 2017? This has been a tremendously tumultuous year um, in Arizona politics, some of which you've identified. I, I think uh, Flake deciding not to run for re-election, uh, John McCain's uh, diagnosis, uh, Trent Frank's resignation. Um, the other two that I would kind of add is the big political stories uh, in 2017 uh, for Arizona would be how Doug Ducey has become unchallenged king of the hill uh, with respect to state government. Um, former Center, Senate President Andy Biggs was a counterweight. Uh, they were very sympathetic simpatico uh, in terms of their uh, outlook, uh, but he was an independent thinker. He had independent power. Uh, he ran for Congress, and no one in the legislature has stepped up to be that counterweight. So uh, right now, Doug Ducey sets the agenda for the state. And then the other, I think, big story uh, was the um, mostly volunteer effort to get uh, the voucher bill uh referred to the ballot and put on hold. A little bit it's been exaggerated. It wasn't an all-volunteer uh, effort as it's commonly being described uh, because at the end they did resort to hiring some paid circulators. But it clearly was mostly a volunteer effort uh, and um, that suggests a uh, new uh, source of uh, activism and political influence. Definitely. Uh, not exactly sure how that manifests itself beyond that issue, um, but that was a significant political achievement. Yeah, a lot of energy, a lot of energy there that'll carry over into 2018. Any other thoughts or notes on, on the year from Arizona? Uh, no, it's it, it's been a, outside of our tumultuous politics. <laughs> it's been kind of steady as you go. Mm -hmm. The economy has continued to improve. We continued to uh, add jobs. Uh, we've kind of inched our way back towards the top of of among the states in terms of economic growth and uh, activity. Um, the state budget has sort of been. Uh, stabilized uh, in a way that's sustainable going forward. There's a lot of people who believe that where it's stabilized at uh, isn't sufficient to meet our needs, but that's a lot different than facing 
a billion dollar deficit in a nine yeah. billion dollar budget. Um, so, um, kind of oddly, the state has just kind of been steady as you go while the politics were <laughs> blowing up all <laughs> yeah. over the place. And we'll, uh, we'll, one of these next podcasts, we'll do a, we'll do a preview of, of 2018, but we want to do a, a year in review there and I hope everyone, thanks for listening. I hope everyone has a jolly Christmas holiday and a happy new year. Hope people uh, are able to forget about politics for a while and spend some time with their family, watch some basketball, go Devils. <laughs> Maybe it'll be like number three in the country right now. Um, and we, we will air the next couple of weeks, but we're going to mix it up a little bit, um, have a couple different different types of episodes uh, for our listeners, but we will be uh, we will be airing over the holidays. Thanks.